Well, good evening to you all, and great to see you tonight. And um, just a little plug for tomorrow evening in World News Briefing. I encourage you to log on at 6 p.m., hischannel.com, hit the live TV button, and uh, join us tomorrow evening as Mike and I are going to be talking about some of the crazy things going on in the Middle East right now. And things have heated up significantly within the past several days. And I just want to encourage you, as we have been given so much information about the time in which we live, the things to be looking for that tell us our redemption is nigh, what happened with the withdrawal of U.S. troops from Syria, the actions that have now been taken place by Tayyip Recep Erdogan, the president of Turkey, are of great biblical significance, and especially in light of what has been happening in these past few days. Now, one of the things I want to maybe tease your brain a little bit, and you get this bonus for coming on Wednesday night, uh, but we'll talk about this uh, tomorrow evening. C.I. Schofield popularized the idea back in 1909 and beyond of Magog representing Russia. Now, modern Bible translators, and even before that, all the way back to historians like the Greek historian Herodotus, never saw Magog as representing Russia. As a matter of fact, Magog very clearly is defined as the region between Cappadocia and Media. Now, who would live in Media? Any guess? The Medes. The Medes and the Persians are familiar uh, names to us. The empire that uh, dominated Israel, as Daniel foretold and history reveals. But one thing we need to keep in mind is that the descendants of the Medes are the Kurds. And so right now, Magog has become militarily active. And we now see uh, the uh, government of Turkey led by Erdogan seeking the destruction of the ancient Medes of the modern day Kurds because he has a desire to reestablish the Ottoman Empire. Part of his plan is to gain control over northern Syria. Ezekiel tells us that God is going to put a hook in the jaw of the head of Meshech and Tubal, which is Turkey, and draw them down out of the north to invade Israel. So it is of great significance what we see going on in the news today, the door that was opened by uh, the withdrawal of U.S. troops, or at least the statement that we were going to do so. Turkey didn't waste any time uh, to become active and seek to destroy a group they have labeled as terrorists, and that being the modern-day Kurds of the ancient Medes. So things are heating up, and this is, of, as I said, great significance for us to consider in light of all the other groundwork that we've been watching Uh, being laid over the past several years with so many of those who are named in the Ezekiel invading force now having a physical military presence on the northern border of Israel. And it depends on your interpretation. That would include the Russians for sure. Without question, the Iranians or the ancient Persians are present and military active on the northern border of Israel. And now we see a great advancement of one of the main players And more of the names in Ezekiel 38 and 39 represent modern-day Turkey than any other nation. Now, Turkey has invaded uh, very clearly Magog, or the region between Media and Cappadocia. So, with that said, it's a great time to be alive. Jesus is coming for his church very soon, I believe. Amen? 
Now, would you open your Bibles tonight to 1 Samuel chapter 31. 1 Samuel 31. And I'll remind you that the last time we were together in chapter 30, we noted that the old David had reappeared, the one we were first introduced to. And he reappeared after his plans came to nothing. He had decided to get back to doing things God's way. And he went off the grid, so to speak, or off course more properly in 1 Samuel 27, 1, which we have mentioned multiple times, where David said where? In his heart, he made a decision based on emotions and based on feelings. He said, now, I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than I should, than that I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines and Saul will despair of me to seek me anymore in any part of Israel. (coughs) Excuse me. So I shall escape out of his hand. Now, David's own concocted plan was half right. He moved to Philistine territory. Saul wanted nothing to do with that. Saul stopped chasing him. But his half-right plan went all wrong once he was inside Philistine territory for the 14 months he was there. He was living a lie, we noted. He would tell Achish one thing, but he was actually doing another. He was marauding and murdering entire villages of people without the direct instruction, at least in Scripture, of the Lord. Then we find him marching in a military parade with the armies of the Philistines, thinking that... When they seek to fight Israel, he'd have a position, an advantage, if you will, behind enemy lines where he could turn on the Philistines and destroy them. But the other four Philistine princes beside Achish said, this is exactly what he's going to do. Send him home. Now, while he was marching with the military parade, his temporary hometown of Ziklag was destroyed by the Amalekites. Everything they had, everyone they loved was carried away captive. And obviously the Lord was in this because normally they would have killed all of the people, but they spared all of the people and carried them all away alive. And because of this great loss and the ignorance at that point in time when they arrived in Ziklag and found it burned by fire, his own men who had been so faithful to him had talk and rumors of stoning him because their families have been uh, taken away. Now, it was then that David started to act like David again. Now, we titled our time, if you remember, in chapter 30, The Sooner the Better. And noting that for David and for any of us, when things have gone sideways, so to speak, the sooner we get away from our wayward actions, the better it's going to be. And we made three points uh, of interest for us last time. We found that the sooner our actions line up with the word of God, the better our witness is going to be. We found the sooner we confront and conquer our own enemies, as David did, our enemies obviously being spiritual, the better our blessings will be. And we also made the point from the last section of chapter 30, that the sooner we recognize that all we have is from the Lord, the better off we're going to be. Now, if you remember, David's testimony had gone from a God-confident giant killer to a defector to the enemies of Israel. That was his testimony, and therefore he had damaged his witness. It was when a young Egyptian boy, who'd actually been abandoned by the Amalekite raiders, and he was uh, had fallen sick 
and left to die that we again see the compassion of David, the wisdom of David, the mercy of David that caused him to be called a man after God's own heart being manifested again. Also, I'll remind you that in our last chapter, we found that there were 200 of David's 600 men who had no strength left when it came to cross over the brook Besor and continue in pursuit of the Amalekites. And they stayed behind with the equipment and the other 400 went and carried out a great conquest and recovered not only all of their family members, but all of their possessions and all of the possessions that the Amalekites had plundered from the Philistines. Now, when they got back to camp where the 200 men who stayed behind with the equipment were camped, some of the wicked men among them said, if you didn't fight, you don't get any of the spoil. To which David replied, and here's some solid evidence evidence that sound reason was returning to David's mind. David said, my brethren, you shall not do so with what the Lord has given us, who has preserved us and delivered into our hand the troop that came against us. For who will heed you in this matter? But as is his part is who goes down to the battle, so shall his part be who stays by the supplies. They shall share alike. And so it was from that day forward, David made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. Now here's where we see David has come full circle. He started this season of life saying, I had to take matters in my own hand, even though God had a track record of protecting and providing for him from Saul's attempts to kill him for over 20 years. Now he says, hey, listen, men, it's the Lord who gave us the victory. It's the Lord who allowed us to recover our families. It's the Lord who increased our possessions by this plunder. We cannot take credit for anything that has been done because the Lord has done it all and thus all will share in the blessings of God. Now, our chapter tonight actually brings us to two endings. It brings us to the end of First Samuel and it brings us to the end of Saul's life and reign as king. And the sad part about this is we've noted multiple times in our studies that Saul actually began very well. He began humble. Saul, Saul uh, Simon, Simon, Samuel even said to him, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not being blessed by God? And he had become great in his own eyes and he became his own primary concern. Now, back in chapter 28, we read when Saul saw the gathering armies of the Philistines, that he was afraid in his heart, and his heart trembled greatly. And therefore, he began to inquire and petition of the Lord, but his inquiries were met only with silence from heaven. And because of Saul's silence, he commanded his men to seek out a medium in the territory by which or through which he could call up Samuel and get the counsel that he needed because the Lord was no longer speaking to him. And we noted it was an anomaly to call up the dead that was forbidden by God in Deuteronomy. But for whatever reason, God allowed Samuel to be called up from Abraham's bosom. And he told Saul this. In 1 Samuel 28, 19, he said, Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. 
chapter 31 is the tomorrow of 1 Samuel 28, 19. It is the day that Samuel told him that he and his sons would join Samuel in death, as he also foretold the defeat of the Israeli army by the Philistines. Now, the sad part about this saga is that we see no signs of repentance on Saul's part. And therefore, like we talked about Sunday, he forfeited the blessings of repentance because he chose not to. We also must pose the question that since Saul was told directly that God had rejected him and replaced him with David as king, should he have not just stepped aside and allowed David to step into the role? We must ask the question, would such actions have led to the sparing of his own son's life and his life as well? Would have there still been victory over uh Israel by the Philistines under the kingship of David, would this have eliminated David's 14 months with a reputation of being a defector to the Philistine king? Now, I pose those questions knowing we can't answer them definitively. All we can do is speculate on what might have happened, but we know for sure what did happen. But what we can learn from this is that due to Saul's sinful sinful actions, what the nation experienced was, and here's our title tonight, little military, but I think you can handle it. Our title tonight is simply collateral damage. Collateral damage will be what we have in view tonight. And we made the point Sunday that to argue in defense of sinful or harmful behavior on one's part, saying, I'm not hurting anybody else or I'm only hurting myself, is an invalid argument. And I couldn't help but think, and I know you guys were thinking about Newton's third law of motion all night last night. I couldn't sleep because of it. I'm kidding. But you've all heard it. You may not know what it's called, but you've all heard it. For every action, there is an equal and opposite what? Reaction. Now, we're not going to talk about physics tonight. And the laws of physics may not be appropriate in their application for our title. But the fact is this, and here's why I wanted to point it out. Actions create reactions. Our actions as Christians create reactions, both positive and negative, and Saul's negative actions created negative responses in the form of not only his death and that of the death of his sons and the defeat of the Israeli army, but there was much collateral damage. And not all that we're going to read tonight is collateral damage, and we'll point that out in a moment, but some without question was. And our chapter is going to help us not only identify the collateral damage from Saul's sin, but also give us three truths as to how to avoid creating such damage from our own action. So would you stand in honor of the word of God? Read with me, please, the final chapter of this division of Samuel's record. First Samuel chapter 31. Let's read the whole chapter together. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, Malchishua, Saul's sons. The battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him, and he was severely wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. 
Therefore, Saul took a sword and fell on it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul, his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men died together that same day. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those who were on the other side of the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled, and the Philistines came and dwelt in them. So it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people. Then they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths, <coughs> excuse me, and they fastened his body to the wall at Bethshean. Now, when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard that the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and traveled all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshean, and they came to Jabesh and they burned them there. Then they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. You may be seated. Obviously, a very distressing chapter to read in light of all we have learned thus far. And our first insight is going to come from that which we find in verses 1 through 6 and the grave personal consequences of Saul's disobedience and some of the collateral damage that it caused. Now, I want to address something before we dig in here tonight that will help us on our way, and that's recorded in Ezekiel 18.20, where the Lord says through the prophet, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Now, I wanted to read this to you to point out that the sons that were killed were not collateral damage. They did not die because of Saul's sin. They died because they were soldiers and they were fighting in battle on behalf of their country. Now, we'll know in a moment that Saul's case was a bit different. But it also reminds us that while Samuel foretold of the death of his three sons and Saul himself and the defeat of the army of Israel, God didn't cause their death. He simply foretold their death. Now, Saul died for Saul's sins. The army was defeated because they were outnumbered. And Saul went to battle and led this group of men without the blessing or direction of the Lord. Now, First Chronicles 10, 13 to 14 also says, So Saul died for his unfaithfulness, which he committed against the Lord because he did not keep the word of the Lord. Keep that phrase in mind. Did not keep the word of the Lord. And also because he consulted a medium for guidance. But he did not, what's the next word? Inquire of the Lord. Therefore, he, the Lord, did what? He killed him and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Now, here's where we need to pause for a moment and uh, unravel any arguments of Bible detractors who say there's contradictions in Scripture. We read in 1 Samuel 28 that Saul inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not reply. 
Here we read that he did not inquire of the Lord and that brought about his death because he chose to seek after a medium for guidance instead. Now, what we need to point out is that there are two separate Hebrew words translated as inquire. One means to ask of or request. And that is a word we find in 1 Samuel 28 where Saul inquired of the Lord. The word in uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 10 is a completely different Hebrew word, and it means to frequent or follow. Did Saul follow the Lord? No, Saul did not follow the Lord, but he would ask things of the Lord and inquire of the Lord, so to speak, when he needed something. So... Saul asked of the Lord, but Saul did not follow the Lord, and the Lord did not answer him. So that does away with any argument uh, comparing one text to the other. Now, as sad as it is to read the loss of Saul's sons, and particularly Jonathan, who we know much of and very little about his two brothers named here, the collateral damage is actually... Saul's armor bearer. He did not die in battle. He took his own life after Saul took his. Now there's a bit of a parenthesis to this we're going to talk about when we arrive in 2 Samuel chapter 1 that is a bit of a curiosity and a matter of debate as well. However, the armor bearer was not simply one who just carried the armor of the king. He had a responsibility for the king's well-being and a dead king meant he failed at his task. Remember when Paul and Silas were in jail and they were singing hymns at midnight and the Lord shook the building so that all the shackles fell off of the uh, prisoners. And what was the jailer going to do? He was going to fall on his sword. He was going to take his own life because he would receive the sentence of the escaped prisoner. So he was going to take his own life. The armor bearer knew that he would be viewed as a failure and took his own life as well. Saul died for his own sin. The armor bearer died because Saul did. Now, here's our point and here's our first warning, if you will, about avoiding collateral damage through our own actions and the reason why we should do so at all costs. Now listen, here's just kind of an argument against what we mentioned during our introduction about I'm only hurting myself or I'm not hurting anybody else. Listen, the reality is this. The ramifications of sin are not limited to the one who committed them. The ramifications of sin are not limited to the one who committed them. Now, I chose the word ramifications specifically because ramifications and consequences in a certain context can mean the same thing. But also in a different context, they can mean something completely different. Consequences are the direct result of an act. Ramifications are the collateral impact of any given act. For example, somebody causes a car accident. The consequences are injuries and damaged vehicles. The ramifications are higher insurance rates and walking wherever you go like they did in the Bible. Now, Saul and his sons were casualties of war. The armor bearer was collateral damage. Now, remember in Exodus 34, 5 to 7, when the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord, 
And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness of truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, first of all, I want you to remember, did not the Lord say in Ezekiel that the son will not pay for the father's sins or the father pay for the sins of the son? Haven't we already read that? So is it still true at this point in the sermon? Yes, it will be true tomorrow too, right? So what that tells us is that Exodus 34 is not establishing what many believe today to be generational curses. There's no such thing. The Bible does not support such teaching. But what we are being told here in Exodus 34 is that the ramifications of one person can impact the generations that follow all the way down to the children and the great-grandchildren. Now, fathers in the context of Exodus 34 simply means ancestors. And I think we all recognize that decisions made upstream can have ramifications on our life today, even though people who were not alive or are not alive at this time has made those decisions. Now, Saul's sin led him into battle without the Lord's blessing or direction. All he had was an ominous foretelling of his own death and the death of his sons. Yet, he did not repent. He did not flee to safety. He did not beg God for the life of his own sons. And even when he was severely wounded, who was Saul thinking about? Saul was thinking about Saul. He didn't say to his armor, armor bearer, I'm dying. Save yourself. You have a family. Run for your life. Get to safety. All he said was, kill me, lest the Philistines come and make sport of my death. Now, the armor bearer refused to do it, and it's possible, maybe even likely, that he refused to do it because of his proximity to the king at all times. And in two occasions on the past, he had probably heard David say, that he will not lift his hand against the Lord's anointed. So this man wasn't going to slay the king. He wasn't going to take his life because the the words of David most likely were still ringing in his ears. So Saul falls on his own sword and the collateral damage follows. The man who stood beside him does the same. Now, as we mentioned on Sunday, as David made his own confession, all sin is against the Lord. Amen? Now, the ramifications of sin are not limited to the one who committed them. There's always going to be some form of collateral damage. It may not be as severe as we see in our text, and certainly, hopefully not. But it can certainly be in the realm of a damaged reputation, a loss of witness, a loss of position or responsibility, and certainly pain and sorrow on the part of others who are impacted by the ramifications of our own poor decisions. And just before we go any further, has anybody made a poor decision here? Okay, thank you for the three honest people in the room. So we've all done it, amen? Now, let me just say this before we move on. Doing things the Lord has prohibited is not worth it, ever. Doing something the Lord has prohibited is just not worth it. Saul was rejected as king, so he should have quit acting like he was one. 
The Lord told him to eliminate the Amalekites, and that's what he should have done. And the consequences of his disobedience was not just losing his title, but then he lost his life. And the collateral damage from his actions was severe. Now look at 7 to 10 with me one more time. We'll draw a second conclusion. And then, and when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those who were on the other side of the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled and the Philistines came and dwelt in them. So it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head, stripped his armor, sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people. Then they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshean. Now, as we examined Psalm 32 this past Sunday, we noted the backstory was the confrontation of David by the prophet Nathan after he had in his mind at least, hidden his sin, even though the Lord knew of it all along. The Lord employed the prophet Nathan to go to David and confront him with the story about the traveler and the man with the one sheep and the other things we talked about Sunday. Now, there was a statement made by Nathan that is made more vivid to our understanding uh, by our text. And in 2 Samuel twelve thirteen and 14, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against who? The Lord and Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed, you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also who is born to you shall surely die. Now repeat what we said on Sunday. Taking this child to heaven was an act of mercy. It wasn't God punishing the child. Going to heaven is never punishment. Somebody say amen. Now, the Hebrew word for blaspheme, in the New Testament, it means to vilify. We talk about speaking evil of the Holy Spirit, being an unpardonable sin in the New Testament. But the Hebrew word means to scorn, spurn, or despise. Now, after ascending Mount Gilboa, finding Saul and his three sons dead, The Philistines desecrate their bodies by chopping off their heads, which is an obvious retribution for what David did to their champion when he cut off the head of Goliath. It was also the ultimate form of shaming an adversary fallen on the battlefield in that day, and especially if the adversary was a king. Now, in 1 Chronicles 10, 8 to 10, we're told it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his sons fallen on Mount Geboa, consistent with our text, and they stripped him and took his head and his armor and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among the people. In other words, tell everybody and speak of it in our places of worship. Then they put his armor in the temple of their gods and fastened his head, his being Saul, head in the temple of Dagon. Now, this again is interesting and likened unto the cutting off of the head of Goliath and now the same happening for Saul and his three sons. 
Now they spread the word of the conquest of Saul and his army all over the land. They placed his army or his armor rather in the temple of the Ashtoreths, also known as Ishtar. She would be Astarte to the Babylonians and the Assyrians. And then they mount Saul's head on the wall of the temple to Dagon. They fastened he and his son's headless bodies to the wall at Bethshean. Now, through these actions, the end result was the God of Israel was scorned, spurned, and despised. He was blasphemed. And this too was collateral damage from Saul's disobedience. Now, we need to remember here the actions of the Philistines are clearly a declaration that the God of the Philistines is greater than the God of Israel. That's why they wanted the word spread far and wide and spoken of in the temples. We have the same type of proclamation made today. We often hear when there's a terrorist attack uh, that those who were the perpetrators were uh, yelling Allahu Akbar uh, when they were bringing about the destruction and uh, loss of life. And Allahu Akbar simply means God is greater. And they are declaring the greatness of Allah over the God of the Jews and Christians and Buddha and anybody else that they will uh, want to throw their net over. So this is exactly what's happening. They're blaspheming the Lord. They're saying the God of the Philistines or gods of the Philistines are greater than Jehovah, the God of Israel. Now, let me just say this. Our God will not put up with such declarations. He will not put up with being put under such an accusation. He is the one true and living God. That's why his word says in First Chronicles 16, 26, for all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Jeremiah would add this, are there any among the idols of the nations that can cause rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Are you not he, O Lord our God? Therefore we will wait for you, since you have made all these. Somebody say hallelujah or something. Now, the Philistines mounted Saul's head in the temple of Dagon as an insult to the God of Israel. They were in their minds making the God of Israel bow down or subservient to their God, Dagon. Now, I hope Dagon uh, has a familiar ring to it. We learned way back in chapter 5 of 1 Samuel that the Philistines who had captured the Ark of God brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the Ark of God, they brought it into the house of who? Dagon. And they set it by Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the earth before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set it in its place again. I might have become suspicious at this point in time that this was not a powerful God. And they rose early the next morning. There was Dagon fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were broken off on the threshold. So Dagon was beheaded. Where did they put Saul's head? In the temple of Dagon. Now, only his torso was left of it. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any who come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he ravaged them and struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, 
The ark of the God of Israel, remember that represented God's presence on earth, must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh toward us and who? Dagon, our God. Are they trying to get back at God? Well, of course they are. That's why they hung Saul's head there. Now, Saul's sin of disobeying God not only cost him his kingdom and life, but now the Philistines have not only decapitated him, but they've retaliated for their god Dagon by mounting Saul's head in a temple to the pagan deity. Now, here's something that we can consider by way of application. Here's the next thing I want you to jot down and think about tonight as we make our, or not just tonight, but always. Listen, failures of the saints is used as fodder by the world. Fodder, fuel, whatever word you want to use. I think you get the meaning. Failures of the saints is used as fodder by the world. Now, this is one of the reasons that we talk so much about the errant teachings of some people on the topic of grace. They teach grace constantly, and any call to righteousness or holiness is viewed by this particular group as works righteousness, or any time the subject of eternal security comes up, They accuse the church or those who hold a different view on their definition of grace, say we're basically promoting the loss of salvation. These are the same people that question any need for repentance, believing once you believe all sin has been forgiven, there's no reason for a confession of sin. All these things we've talked about uh, recently and beyond. But here's the question. Why doesn't this group ever talk about damaging your witness? Why doesn't this group ever talk about loss of effectiveness? Why doesn't this group ever talk about giving the enemies of God the opportunity to blaspheme and disparage God because of behaviors outside of God's will and plan for our lives? They're figuratively wanting to hang our heads on the walls of their temples. Now, we don't let the world dictate our actions. Amen? We don't let the world tell us what to do. But we cannot allow them to have the opportunity to exploit our actions for their causes either. And James 2, 1 to 6 says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come, and I'm using this as an illustration, for if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings, fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, You sit here in a good place. And say to the poor man, you stand over there, sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren. Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress and drag you into courts. We read all that to get to this. Do they not blaspheme the noble name by which you are Call. Now, obviously, the context of what James says is regarding favoritism of the rich because they are rich, and hopefully some type of gain would be garnered by giving them a favored seat in the synagogue. But verse 6 opens the door for us to pose a question. Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? Let me ask you a question today. Are the false prosperity teachers being used as fodder by the world as a reason to reject the gospel of Christ? Is that happening today? If you've ever heard or heard of someone saying, the church is all about money. 
That's collateral damage from prosperity teaching. If you've ever heard that someone does not go to church or they wouldn't consider going to church because all the church is after is your money, that's collateral damage from prosperity teaching. If you've ever heard someone talk about some of these faith healers or seen videos mocking the antics of some of these people in the word faith movement in our day, this is collateral damage. And the world is using their misuse and abuse of scripture as fodder for their excuses to reject God. Now, listen, we don't live sanctified and godly lives so we can be saved. We don't live sanctified and godly lives so we can stay saved. We live sanctified and godly lives so we don't give the enemies of God a chance to blaspheme him because of our moral failures as the people of God. Listen, it's not about earning. It's about honoring. We honor the Lord with all that we say and all that we do. And the sooner we recognize this and act on it, the sooner we're going to decrease the opportunity for causing collateral damage by our own lives and actions. That's where you say, Amen. Now, let's take a look at 11 to 13 and wrap up our time. Now, when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and traveled all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshean. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. Then they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. Now, with the men of Israel on the opposite side of the valley of Jezreel, that's the valley that is mentioned here, and on the other side of the Jordan, saw that the Israelites fled. Saul and his sons were dead. They took flight out of their cities and the Philistines took possession over them. And this was no small event. This encompassed all the area between Gilboa and the Jordan River, all of the country surrounding the Valley of Jezreel, which would translate into almost all the northern portion of the nation of Israel. It fell under Philistine control when Saul, his sons, and his men were slain. Now, on hearing this news, all the valiant men of Jabesh-Gilead began a northwesterly march up to Bethshean, on a recovery mission of the desecrated bodies of Saul and his sons. And the mission obviously was a success, so we're not given any of the specifics about it. But we are told the bodies were burned upon their return to Jabesh and buried under a tamarisk tree as they fasted and mourned for seven days, which is the Jewish tradition to this very day at the loss of a loved one. Now, 2 Samuel 21, 12 to 14 says, Then David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the street of Bethshean, where the Philistines had hung them up, and the Philistines had struck down Saul and Gilboa. So he brought up the what? The bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from there. And they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged, his two brothers, obviously. They buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, in the country of Benjamin and Zilah in the tomb of Kish, his father. So they performed all the king that the king had commanded, the king being David. And after that, God heeded the prayer for the land. Now, this tells us that the burning of the bodies was not an incineration. 
they weren't burned into ashes. It was simply the destruction of all the flesh and tissue, basically to do away with all the signs of the abuse that their bodies had taken at the hands of the Philistines in their efforts to show disrespect for Saul and to disparage the God of Israel. Now, the geography is important here as well, as Jabesh Gilead is not part of the areas from which the Israelites fled. They were on the east side of the Jordan, and the valley, uh, uh, valiant men, rather, from that city rose up, they crossed the Jordan River, they traveled all night and recovered the bodies of the king and his sons. Now, this is important to note because part of the collateral damage from the sin of Saul was fear on behalf uh, or on the part of the Israelites that caused him to flee rather than fight. Now, normally they would have stood their ground. And it's not that flight was wrong in this circumstance, but they had no leader. They had no word from the Lord. They had no clear direction or blessing in battle because Saul was disconnected from the Lord. He was too far gone. And he looked to what God had forbidden to find out what he should do when he consulted the medium and called up Samuel. Now, thus we can see the trickle down effect of Saul's disobedience all the way back to when he did not slaughter the Amalekites as the Lord had commanded him. Now, all the valiant men arose and traveled all night to bring the shame of the name of Saul, their country, and their God to an end by recovering the bodies of Saul and his three sons. Now, we've had a couple of words of caution and why we ought to avoid causing collateral damage to our own actions. And I wanted to end our time. I just couldn't get away from this. It's a familiar phrase. I'm sure we've all heard it in some form of fashion. But we need to be encouraged that when the world is blaspheming God, when things seem to be turning in the wrong direction for the church corporate, when they're mocking the church and therefore the noble name of the head of the church, Jesus Christ, all because of what some Christian had done somewhere that gave the enemies of God the opportunity to blaspheme. Here's what we need to remember in bleak times and seasons such as these. Listen, I don't know who said it, but I'm going to quote it. And it goes like this. Every setback is a great opportunity for a comeback. Amen. Every setback is a great opportunity for a comeback. Now, I don't know how it was first quoted or who first said it, but the valiant men of Jabesh Gilead remind us that when someone seeks to disparage the God of Israel via the failures of fallible humans, we need to be valiant. We need to stand up as the people of God and stand up for his name. Thank you. Ephesians 6, 11 to 13 says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Is the devil active today? Is he trying to take us down today? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. This is talking about the rank and file of fallen angels who are constantly on the prowl, seeking whom they may devour like their leader, Satan. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand when? In the evil day, having done all to do what? Did these valiant men do all to stand? 
in order to protect the name of their country and certainly of their God. And listen, the collateral damage of false teaching is rampant today. And during such times, the valiant must stand in spite of all the fodder that is being fed to the world that they are using against us. Now listen, I want to close with some reminders here. Are you ready? Listen tonight. Ours is the true and living God. Ours is the God who is mighty to save. Ours is the God who raises up kings and sets them down. Ours is the sovereign, matchless, all-powerful creator of all things who speaks universes into existence with but a single word and creates light from darkness with the same. Our God holds the seas in the palm of his hand. He measures the universe with the span of his hand. He names and numbers the stars. He sets the boundaries of the oceans and limits their advance advance on the land. He rides the clouds. He determines the path of the thunderbolt. He is the God of the armies. He cannot be contained by the heavens, much less a house that is built with human hands. He can restore years eaten by swarming locusts and canker words. He knows the end from the beginning. He can tell the future future with greater accuracy than we can recall the past. He can raise the dead. He can heal the sick. He can give sight to the blind. He can cleanse the leper. He can make the lame walk and leap. He forgives sin. He instills hope. He can make the filthy righteous. He can build a city by speaking it into existence like no other and then be its light. He is the King of heaven. He is the Lord of lords. He is the King of glory. Great is his name, worthy to be praised. There is no one like him, for there is no other God besides him. His name is Jehovah. He saves the rich and poor. He forgives the meek and the mighty. He welcomes the child and the aged, and no one can stop him or ask him, what are you doing? I say, we stand even when so many around us have fallen. I say we stand even when all the fodder for the world is coming from within our own ranks and those who claim association with us. I say we stand for the king as his valiant warriors who are more concerned about the glory of his name than the honor of our own. I say we be found among the mighty. I say collateral damage will not stop us from bringing him glory. And that's where you say... Amen. That's all I got. Father, we thank you for this text tonight, as sad and tragic as it is. But we thank you, Lord, that even in times of such tragedy and defeat, that there are the valiant who will stand up. And Lord, help us to be among their number. In these days where so much is happening within and within what's called the church that is giving the world reasons and excuses for disparaging your great and noble name. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be among the valiant, that you would help us to be those who do all to stand. That, Lord, our concern would be for your great name, even above our own name, accomplishments, and goals. So, Lord, we thank you again for this text. We thank you for what we have learned throughout our journey through 1 Samuel. We thank you for what we're going to learn as we move now into 2 Samuel next week. So, Lord, we pray that as we 
have all had our moments like David where we took matters into our own control, began to be directed and moved about by emotion and feelings. Lord, that we too would return to doing things the right way and return to being valiant for your great name, even as we see with these men from this town. We thank you, Lord, that we have nothing to run from, but rather when we resist the devil, he will flee from us. So help us, Lord, to avoid all forms of collateral damage by our own actions, by simply living in accordance with your word, as we talked about on Sunday. We thank you again for this time that we've had to study this incredible book thus far. We look forward to all you'll say in the future. Bless us now as we go, as we seek to stand for you in these ever-darkening days. In Jesus' name we pray these things. And all God's people agreed by saying, Amen. It is an amazing time to be alive, and it's getting more incredible as each day passes. I'm excited about heaven, aren't you? Yeah, well, that just almost knocked me down. I'm excited about heaven, aren't you? The Lord has made a way. He's told us everything we need to know for life in these last days. He told us there will be false Christ. He told us there will be wars and rumors of wars. He told us there will be ethnic tensions. He told us, I just read an article today, that STDs are at their greatest level in the history of the United States, even though they had reached historic lows just back in 2009. Between 2009 and 2019, they have reached record levels. So there's rampant pestilence in our world and in our own country today. He told us there would be earthquakes and unusual places. We're seeing all these things happening right now, as he described them in Matthew 24, 3-8, as the beginning of sorrows or birth pangs. So, as I've told you before in a message we titled The End of the Beginning, we are at the end of the early labor stages, I believe, and the world is about to give birth to the tribulation. So our redemption is nigh. The Lord is going to come meet us in the air with a trumpet sound, and we will be changed instantaneously and permanently into immortal, incorruptible beings and forever be with the Lord. That's pretty exciting stuff. We live in exciting times. Amen. So that gives us precious little time as I challenge you on Sunday to tell people about Jesus. Let's be about the Father's business. Amen. Would you all stand?